Amen. And thank you uh, for singing so well with us. Uh, good morning again. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors at CBC. Grateful that the other pastor is also back from sabbatical, all fired up and ready to go. Uh, pastor Aaron, as has already been saying, is going to begin a new series beginning next Sunday. But we're glad for your time away and glad that uh, he could be back now with us as a family. I invite you now, if you have a Bible, to turn to the last chapter of Colossians. Colossians 4, the last 12 verses. We'll get there in a moment as we wrap things up. You've likely heard this phrase, uh, all good things must come to an end. Well, that's true in a lot of things. It's true for sabbaticals. It's true for summer vacations, although not completely yet. It's true for fiscal years. CBC's fiscal year actually ends this week. And this summer sermon series does come to an end as we look at the last few verses of Colossians. I again want to say thank you to Adam Johns. I know he's not here any longer, but he really got things going. And the elders and the others who preached to really appreciate all those these last couple of months. The series has been a, a good one for me and hopefully for you as well. Uh, challenging, uh, convicting, and encouraging us all in the centrality and supremacy of Christ. Let's pray again as we get started. Lord Jesus, you are the person of our worship. You are the center of our praise. Open our hearts to hear and learn and love you more. Amen. Thirty-some years ago, I was at college, at Tabor College in Hillsboro, and not only was I studying biology, but I was in the middle of making some of the best friendships of my life. Kyle Zellner is one of those. But in particular, there were nine of us guys in the same class who grew especially close, so much so that after we graduated, we committed to staying in communication. This was in the days before email and social media, so we did something called writing letters. And I have a note here. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it. You can ask your parents. But we did something called a, a round-robin letter. Some of you may have done this in families. The way it worked for us was that periodically I would receive in the mail a bundle of letters. And I, it would be letters from all my friends, and including me. And I would read through all the letters. I would take out my old one. I would write a new one with my latest updates. And then I would mail that whole bundle on to the next person in the chain who would do the same thing. And it would keep going until it came back to me, and it would continue on that way. Uh, we kept it going for uh, quite a few years. Uh, there were some extended layovers. We could point fingers. I usually pointed to Mark Entz was the guy. It probably was me sometimes, too. But when it was active, it was a fun and cool way for the nine of us to keep up with each other. What's going on in our lives? What's new through these round-robin letters? As we read uh, the text this morning, Paul's letter to the Colossians was meant to be passed along as well. A letter to friends in the faith, meant to update and inform and instruct not just the church in Colossae, but also some neighboring towns as well. What was Colossians about? The letter. If you've missed uh, some weeks in this series, I would encourage you to go back and 
and fill in the gaps. There's a sermons on the website. We also have the YouTube uh, channel, CBC YouTube channel. You can do that. But in short, the main theme or emphasis of Colossians, what we've seen throughout the letter, is the centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. In fact, we call this series the supremacy of the Son. It shows up in in every segment that we've looked at. Just a quick summary. We know how easy it is as believers to get distracted, to get distracted from keeping Christ at the center, right? We get busy. We get lazy. There's things, difficulties, things happen in life. Sometimes we forget. But what all of Scripture does from beginning to end, and what Paul does in this letter, is point us back to who Christ is and call us to reorient our lives around him. And who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Who is this person? We're going to begin by just reminding us from Colossians 1, the words that we started with this morning. Colossians 1, beginning verse 15, He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is our creator, sustainer, redeemer. He's overall in all. He is preeminent, a word that means that he is supreme. There is no other God, no other gospel than Jesus Christ incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and glorified. And so, a chapter later, Colossians 2, those who have received Jesus Christ are to grow in maturity towards Christ. It says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then comes a somber warning, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Apparently, already by this time, there was some false teaching already creeping into the new church. The exact teaching isn't explicitly stated in the letter, but it seemed to be that Christ alone wasn't enough. Rather, it needed to be Christ plus something. And you've heard this in the previous weeks of sermons. Christ plus certain rituals or ceremonies, Christ plus man-made traditions, Christ plus angel worship, asceticism, secret knowledge, to which Paul says no. Faith in the supreme and only Christ is sufficient for forgiveness of sin, for reconciliation to God the Father, for salvation to eternal life. Christ is enough. We are complete in him. We are free in him. That's the first couple chapters of the letter. The last, the final two chapters of Colossians, Paul turns to more practical wisdom and guidelines on on how to live 
by setting up our minds, setting our minds on Christ, putting to death or mortifying the sinful nature, putting on the character of Christ, doing everything as Colossians 3.17 says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that means, as we learn, submitting to him in all areas of our lives, including family relationships. So there's a section on husbands and wives and parents and children. Our work, our prayer life, our speech, um, our interactions with those on the outside, those people who don't yet know Jesus. And now we get to the end of the Colossians letter, where Paul shares, as he typically does, some closing greetings, some encouragements with those who have partnered with him in ministry. Partners and friends centered on Christ. I'm going to read this last section beginning with verse 7 of chapter 4, and I'll be reading from ESV. It says this, a lot of names. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent them to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Verse 15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul closes the letter like he does most of his letters by a bunch of greetings and some final notes. One thing I think that this section does for me, and one reason why I like it a lot, why it's grown on me, it shows this is a real letter to real people, right? It's not just a theological treatise. It, it, is, it is that. There's a lot of doctrine and meat in this. But this is a real letter to real people with real names and names that people will be familiar with, at least in that time. It starts with two guys who are probably the letter carriers, Tychicus, and Onesimus, plus six others who were probably near Paul in the Roman prison where he likely penned this letter. Then he greets those receiving the letter and gives them instructions on what to do next. These are Paul's partners in the gospel, and I believe they become his friends as well. I was thinking about how to 
break up this passage or, or what to do with it. There's a lot of names here, some of which are familiar. We see them elsewhere in Scripture, especially Mark and Luke. You know, they wrote a chunk of the New Testament, and we're familiar with them. But rather than just study all their names, what I want to focus on this morning is what Paul says about this group of people. What made them good partners? What made them good friends? Because I think what was true in the early church is true of us believers today at CBC and all churches that preach the centrality and supremacy of Christ. So here is the main question I want us to look at for the rest of our time today. What do Christ-centered, gospel-focused friendships look like? As we consider this group of people in in Paul's letter and the greeting to the Colossian church, what do Christ-centered, gospel-focused friendships look like? I'm certain there are more, but I'm going to mention seven things, seven characteristics we see of Christ-centered, gospel-focused partners and friends. The first one is this, family. Christian friendships should look like family. Look at the uh, first couple verses, verse 7, at the words Paul uses to describe uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. He calls Tychicus a beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Later on, he says to Onesimus, he is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. This term, a brother, is a familial term. It's a family term. These guys are true brothers in Christ, serving arm in arms, united in the Lord, and they're doing it as family. And what does Paul tell them that they will do? He says, they will tell you, the Colossians, all about my activities, about how we are, everything that has taken place, that they may encourage your hearts. Just a note on communication. Communication is so important. Healthy families, we know, communicate uh, well with each other. We don't always communicate well in our family, but we do try. So every Sunday evening, typically on Sunday evenings, Meryl and I try to have a phone conversation with each of our adult kids so we can catch up. How are you doing? What are some of the things in your life? Some of those conversations are joy-filled and we can laugh, and some of them are difficult. There's painful things sometimes we go through, but we try to communicate regularly. One of the uh, commentators that I read named Dick Lucas said this of communication. Without frequent news of one another, no relationship can flourish. I think we would agree with that. Without frequent news, no relationship can flourish. And Paul says that these men are going to do just that. They're going to bring the Colossian church news. They're going to tell them about their circumstances, things not included in the letter. There's a lot of things they have to share that aren't included in the letter. To encourage them, especially to comfort them, and let them know how they can pray, how they can pray for them. We know uh, that good communication fosters growth and understanding. We just know that to be true. On the flip side, we also know that poor communication or like holding secrets or not being completely honest can damage family, can damage a church. And we are, after all, brothers and sisters in Christ. I love that about this church. We are family Uh, We're family believers no matter what our backgrounds are, our circumstances. And like Paul with Tychicus and Onesimus, Christ-centered friendships look like family. Number two, they are also redemptive. 
They're redemptive. And what I mean by that, they're un, they have an unlimited capacity for forgiveness. There are two names in uh, verses 9 and 10 that have some rather unsavory backstories. One is Onesimus. Josh Lewis mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. We learn about the story of Onesimus from Paul's letter to Philemon. But the gist of it is that at one time Onesimus was a slave of Philemon's who apparently stole from him and ran away. At some point later down the road, uh, Onesimus was converted, came to Christ, likely by Paul's ministry, and he actually became very useful to Paul. And so Paul urges or really uh, entreats Philemon to receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. It's a cool story of redemption from runaway slave to a partner in the gospel. The other name we see is, is Mark. In Mark, we read elsewhere in Scripture, particularly in Acts, where he's called John Mark. He'd early been part of Paul and Barnabas' for his first missionary journey, but for some unspecified reason, Mark left him. He deserted him. When that did not sit well with Paul and even caused Paul and Barnabas to separate for a time. However, uh, years later, we read that Mark has been restored to Paul. So much so that in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul writes that Mark is very useful to me in ministry. He's been restored. Here's the, the deal I was thinking about when I was writing this. In, in a family, in a church, there will be plenty of opportunities to forgive. At some point, I am going to say or do something that is going to offend or hurt. I don't want to, but frankly, you're probably going to do the same thing. The glorious thing, I think, as about Christian believers is, is that we can and we should restore and forgive. Jesus taught it. He modeled it. Paul, in this letter, reminds of Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. It may be this morning that you're at odds with someone else in the church, or you may have been the instigator. You may have hurt someone, but no matter what the reason, the situation, the model we see in the scripture over and over again is redemption, is forgiveness, making things as right as possible, especially in light of Christ forgiving us. Christian friendships are redemptive. Third, they suffer together. Christ-centered gospel-focused friendships suffer together. Look at verse 10 and how Aristarchus is described as my fellow prisoner. There is some debate as to whether Aristarchus is actually in prison or whether this is a more of a metaphorical statement. Most scholars I read actually think he was in prison. And he very likely could be because anybody who aligned with Paul was probably on the hot seat already, right? Or he may have just chosen to be in prison with him to be a comfort to Paul. To Paul, but whatever the reason, the main point for us is that bearing the name of Jesus leads to opposition and suffering. Jesus said this would be the case. For example, in John chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus says, Because you are not of this world, talking to his disciples, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because it persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We know this. Suffering for the name of Christ shouldn't be a surprise. 
Probably shouldn't have been to Aristarchus either. In Acts 19, he was taken by a violent mob in Ephesus while traveling with Paul. And later on, he was shipwrecked on a way to Paul's trial, and now he finds himself in prison. But there's two other guys listed here, verses 10 and 11. Mark, who we've already talked about, and Jesus Justice. We don't know anything else about him. But look how Paul describes them in verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Men of the circumcision identifies these three along with Paul as Jews. They're the only Jewish, apparently non, or Jewish Christians currently ministering with Paul. There's almost a hint of sadness that I pick up in Paul's tone here. They had suffered at the hand of their own people. Uh, as Jews, Jewish leaders uh, considered Jesus and any of Jesus' followers to be a threat, a threat to be diminished or squashed. And besides that, Paul had even declared to the Jews that he was sent to the Gentiles, and that probably didn't sit well with him either. So suffering happened, and whatever the case, these three stood with Paul in suffering for the kingdom of God. Christian friends suffer together. Number four, Christian friends are praying and serving. They pray for each other and they serve the church. Paul spends a significant amount of time highlighting this character named Epaphras, verses 12 and 13. He was also mentioned earlier in the letter in chapter 1. It's probably Epaphras who founded the church in Colossae after coming to Christ through Paul's ministry. Uh, Paul describes Epaphras this way. He's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Walt, uh, Joe's talked about this last week, the importance of this ongoing steadfast prayer that we saw a few verses earlier. In verse 12, the, it's interesting, the Greek word that Paul uses uh, for struggling in his prayers literally means to agonize or to wrestle or to fight. Epaphras agonized in his prayers for the Colossians. He was deeply concerned that they stand firm, mature, and fully convinced in God's will. That their faith wouldn't waver because of teaching that opposed or added to the gospel of Jesus. Pretty cool. Not only did Epaphras pray hard, he worked hard as well. Verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Just as he agonized in prayer, he agonized in service. And that word combination, worked hard, literally means to heavy labor to the point of pain. Right? So some of us know what it's like to work until it hurts. And I don't think he's talking about serving every time that we have to do it till it hurts. But it does mean we serve fervently. I believe it means we serve intently and intentionally and willfully, even gladly for a common goal. The mention of these two cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, probably means that Epaphras had some pastoral role there as well. They were fairly close to Colossae, probably within 10, 15 miles. Epaphras is a dude I'd like to hang with in my circle of friends, right? 
Churches need Epaphrases. Who are the Epaphrases at CBC? Not everyone uh, can work that hard or pray that hard or do both of them all of the time. And I don't think Paul includes them to make us feel guilty, like we're not doing as much as he is. But he is a remarkable model. He's an example to us of a prayer warrior and of a dedicated servant. But I believe for believers, the word is still true. This God gives you and I abilities and energy and time. Believers should pray for and serve the body of believers. This won't come as a big surprise to those who, who are here, but there are plenty of opportunities right now to pray and serve at CBC. Uh, most of you already do in this service. I would say if you're a regular attender not yet involved or fully involved in ministry, your prayer and your service are needed right now as partners and friends uh, in various ministries, in prayer ministry, in children's and youth ministry, and I say that particularly as we get closer to the start of school year, there's many needs, good ones and exciting ones, but there are needs nonetheless. As tuck team, building and grounds, worship team, and, and plenty more. What I would encourage you to do, and this isn't meant to be a hard sell at all, but check out the serving opportunities on the ministry area walls right outside these doors in the back, in the lobby. Get a hold of the person. There's, a, there's cards there. And there's people's names. Get a hold of the person on the card. Send them an email. And then start praying and serving for the growth of the church. That's what we do. So far, we've seen that Christ-centered, gospel-focused believers are family, are redemptive. They suffer together. They pray and serve. And I had a tricky time with this next one, but it, number five is that it can sometimes be disappointing. Sometimes disappointing. Verse 14 mentions two people. The first is Luke, the beloved physician. There is absolutely nothing disappointing in Luke at all. In fact, every time Luke is mentioned, it's always positively. He is a companion, a regular companion. He is a personal close friend of Paul's. And it's actually in this verse that we learn he's a doctor. But the second name is Demas, no descriptors are added uh, to Demas here, uh, probably suggesting that maybe there are already some concerns we don't know. But what we do know is that later on, Demas deserted Paul and perhaps Christ as well. In 2 Timothy 4, 9, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, in love with this present world, deserted Paul. The world has great allure. There are things that we all enjoy and should enjoy about the world that God made. But since Genesis 3, when sin entered in the world, Satan has used the empty attractions of the world to draw people away, even believers away, from God. Things that we could easily come up with, right? Power, uh, sex, stuff, money, pleasure, fame, and the list goes on. I don't know what it was for Demas, but something drew him away, and it cost him dearly, perhaps even his soul. In last uh, fall's sermon series in First John, we read this, First John 2.15, do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Misplaced love leads away from Christ. That's what it does. Misplaced love leads us away from Christ. So we must be on guard not to become a Demas. But the truth is, sometimes our friends will love this present world too much and fall away. And that is hugely disappointing. It's sad. So what are we to do about Demas's? We're to pray for them. Love them. Confront them. And pray that they return, that they repent and return to the Lord. Sometimes our friends in the faith disappoint us. And we can be a disappointment too. But we continue on because the next characteristic, number six, is generosity. Brothers and sisters in Christ are generous. There is a shift in verse 15 from the people sending their greetings. Now those being actually greeted, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, literally brothers and sisters at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. Of course, it's very doubtful that there were any church buildings yet, so the norm for early believers was to meet in homes. And I chose this word generous because of Nympha and what we see in her. She was generous. She was hospitable with her home and with her resources. It's quite likely that she was someone of means who desired to bless the Lord and the church by sharing, by being generous. Obviously, not everyone can host gatherings. Not everyone can give large financial gifts. But Christians are to be generous, to steward whatever the Lord gives. And we hear this time, talent, treasures. Well, that's true. The Lord allows us to steward whatever time and talent and treasures we may have. And I see Nympha doing that for the church with her home. And that generosity spilled over into sharing not just a home, but also Paul's letters. Verse 16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. This isn't exactly a round-robin letter, but it, it is shared info and nonetheless. It's not known for sure what this letter, uh, Laodicean letter was. Some people think it might be actually the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, but probably it is a letter that has been lost that we don't have. But regardless, it still gives us a picture of churches that are sharing with each other, that are partnering together, being generous with materials of faith. Uh, We live, obviously, in an area that's loaded with churches. There is no shortage of places of worship around us, especially now with live streaming. Right. So within a mile or two of CBC is Fellowship Olathe and Christ Community EV Free just up the road and Christ Community Nazarene also. And there are others, too. And I think all these are solid churches. I'm rather partial to CBC because I grew up here and I love the people and the preaching. But I do believe that there's a lot of great churches around this. And, yeah, I do think we can learn to better share resources and share and be more generous, better partners with them. I am encouraged, though, by partnership that we have within our denomination of Mennonite Brethren. I think it's cool. Uh, One in particular, you've heard us talk a lot about it, last three years is Lakeview Church in Utah. We've sent teams there. 
uh, we've given financially. And my son, James, is there right now for another couple of weeks doing a summer an internship in youth. Uh, our family just got back from vacation there this week, actually. We spent some time with James and uh, also got to spend some time with Phil and Melissa Weeb and family. Phil is the lead pastor of the two Lakeview campuses, uh, Stansbury Park and then 10 miles away at Grantsville. And Phil is super excited about generous church partnership. I was thinking about it when we were there, and I asked him if I could ask him some questions, and so he agreed to sit down with me for a short interview, invite you to watch the screens for part of our conversation in just a few minutes. So I wanted uh, to talk to you because this week I'm preaching uh, on the last verses of Colossians 4 uh, to partner, I'm going to call it partners and friends, I think. Uh, because it's uh, in this closing uh, set of verses to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, he, it's a list of people that he's greeting and encouraging, uh, people that have probably become close friends to him, uh, people he's partnered with uh, in the gospel, and um, they're all united in Christ. And so I know I've talked with you several times about this idea of partnering. You've actually talked to me about it. Uh, and you've taught me a ton uh, about it. So what can we, what do we need to know about partnering? Oh, okay. Uh, first of all, I love partnering. It started out as a church planter. I needed to raise raise money, and I didn't want to just be like coming to every place with a open hand. But it made me really think about partnering a little bit differently. And I started thinking about the body of the body of Christ and how within our local church is diverse. There's many parts. Every one of us has. A different role to play and I started wondering does the body of Christ get limited by the local church or, or can it go beyond the building can it go beyond county lines can it go beyond state lines can it go fully global and do we as churches recognize that we are actually part of the larger body of Christ and in partnering up we have different gifts and and resources that actually benefit each other so as that kind of came to my mind as, as far as developing a partnership it, it really made me realize that, you know, a young church, yes, we're on the receiving end, but perhaps there's something we can also give back. And in that piece and in that idea, I started connecting with Russ uh, back in 2019, and, and we started really looking at what does it look like to partner. So obviously community, church, community Bible churches brought resources and teams out here and supported us. And, and we've just really been processing. That's something that you guys as a, as a more seasoned church have, have been able to bless us with. And I, I've been hoping to be able to be a part of us blessing Community Bible Church back. And, and uh, we're hoping to do that. How that's really turned out yet, you know, it might take a little longer, but we each play a part in the body of Christ. How has this idea of partnering encouraged you personally, like on a personal level? Well, personally, one of the coolest things that I've seen is well, selfishly, selfishly, uh, this is one of my really good friends. Like, um, I was actually, before we got on the camera here, telling Russ how there's, there's a, a really special thing as a pastor to have a pastor friend who isn't part of our church where I can confide in him some of the challenging things that I'm struggling with. And that's one piece. Another cool piece is uh, you guys have uh, Walt and Myrna Jost at your church, and uh, they have become unbelievably supportive people to Jeff and Heather Hubrick. Uh, the Hubricks are, are a pastoral couple in Grantsville 
and their relationship there has been extremely significant and, and really special. So not only does it happen on a programmatic church-to-church level, but there's also these individual relationship levels. And we've, we've benefited in a lot of different ways. Just practically, you guys built our stage. You guys have built our video booth. You guys have helped us run multiple events here that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping... Um, I'm hoping that uh, eventually we can bring a team out there when you guys plant your first campus. I, you keep threatening that, so that's <laughs> awesome. We should still keep talking about that. Uh, one thing I've heard you say a couple times in the last, maybe even more so in the last year, is uh, that you're in a battle uh, here, particularly. And of course, we know as Christians, uh, the Lord fights a battle for us, and He's actually won the victory. But we have a common enemy, mm-hmm. right? One who's seat, who's bent on discouraging, uh, frustrating, and even destroying the body of Christ, globally, locally, wherever you know, getting at our getting in our hearts and trying to discourage us. So this idea of partnering or encouraging each other, to me, is pretty cool, too, that we can partner together in the battle. So yeah. we're not alone. Yeah. So you've told me this many times, yeah. even last night, that we're not alone. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and knowing you have somebody out there um, really to help you get back up on your feet. And, and I use battle terminology. I know it's not, it's not really Mennonite <laughs> brethren friendly, but we are, we are in a spiritual it's war. It's biblical. But we're in a spiritual war. Like uh, there, there are there are powers that are beyond what we can see, fighting for the souls of mankind. There's going to be moments where you're discouraged as a believer, and it, it's nice to have a larger body, even even beyond, uh, you know, your own local church that's there to support you. It's it's the greater part of being involved in a larger family. When I get to talk to Aaron and I get to talk to Russ, um, you know, even just talking to Tim and Karen Hoffman who've been out here a couple times. Uh, you guys are involved in ministry in special ways, and and us to be able to be involved and pray for that is exciting as well. It's, it's yeah. just it's fun to be a part of something that God is doing that just goes beyond what we're doing. I think prayer is is big and important. And in, in this passage in Colossians, one of the things that I I underlined this morning, one of the guys is Epaphras, and he's probably somebody who is important in starting this church. And it says this. Paul writes this about him. Uh, He's a servant of Jesus Christ, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And I think we've got to keep praying for each other and praying that we grow in Christ and become fully mature in him. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, yeah. that's part of it. Yeah. So also as friends, uh, <clears throat> we'd like to goof around and, and do some of that stuff together. So I'm still debating whether I should show like a little clip you know of our first take at this interview. Our first interview take. Yeah, I think you guys should watch that. <laughs> anyway, it's great. It's great to be a part of church this yeah. morning. Love you guys. Thanks for uh, partnering with us. We're and delighted I'm, to partner with and you. And I'm looking forward to the partnership as it grows. Yeah. Thanks much. This month. So, can you uh, tell me some of the benefits of partnering partnering with churches? The first benefit is you're not alone. You have friends. You have to do stuff by yourself. Friends are so awesome. Thanks so much. That was goofy. Also gave me a few minutes to sit down, but I think what, what Phil said is it helps us remember as partners that we are not alone, that we are part of something much larger, and that's the global body of Christ serving our supreme Savior and King with a common goal to make his name great. 
to make disciples and to equip the saints for ministry. Just have one final characteristic and then the closing. Number seven, Christ-centered, gospel-focused friendships are encouraging and exhorting. They encourage and exhort. Verse 17 is a somewhat mysterious a final instruction. Paul writes, and he writes this instruction to the church, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. This is kind of a, an odd way to wrap up the greeting section, uh, perhaps, with a specific command for the church to give to a specific person, in this case, Archippus, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. There is no way to know what specific ministry Paul is talking about or even why Paul tells the church to give Archippus this word, but it's clear that the Colossian church knows and soon Archippus will as well. It is possible that Paul is simply just giving a word of positive encouragement, being K-love to Archippus when he's down, or he could be telling the church, hey, Archippus has my support. I I agree with him. I approve of what he's doing. Or he might be calling the guy out for slacking off in a a ministry role that he was given, telling it's time to get going. And that's kind of what I mean by exhortation, a gentle or not so gentle urging or spurring on to action. Let's go. It's time. It could be any of those things. It could be none of those things, something entirely different. But what is clear, and what I think we should point out, is that the whole Colossian church is asked to share the responsibility to make sure Archippus follows through. It's a task of the church to encourage and exhort. On this thought, one of the commentators named James Dunn noted that the church shares mutual responsibility and shared authority within the community. As Christians partner, as Christian partners and friends, as a church here, as a church worldwide, we need to encourage each other and exhort each other to be faithful to Scripture, faithful to what God has called us to do, as in the church reminding Archippus to fulfill his calling, or Paul later on to Timothy in Second Timothy 1, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And one more Hebrews 10:24 Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together it is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near challenge for us as a church let's fulfill the ministry that we have in the Lord and support each other in it So this is uh, the Colossian letter in this last section, showing us some of the markers of what Christian partnerships look like, Christ-centered, gospel-focused friendships and partnerships. And so we close now with the final verse, Colossians 4:18. There are three parts, three little pieces to this amazing verse. First one is this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is kind of Paul's mark of, of authenticity. This is his words given by the Holy Spirit, but it's him. He's saying, this is my hand, my greeting. Then he says, number two, remember my chains. Remember my chains. I don't think Paul is seeking here pity from the Colossians. I don't think he is uh, asking them to uh, help him get out of prison. 
I don't think he's seeking freedom for himself, but he is seeking freedom for the gospel. So remember my chains. Keep growing in the faith and maturity. Remember my chains and protect the truth of Scripture. Remember my chains and be ever more bold in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The good news that summarized even by Paul earlier in this book, Colossians 1.13, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so the final word from Paul is actually the same word that he used to start the letter. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Christ is supreme. There is no other Savior, no other way, no other truth, no other life. He is supreme. This is grace that Christ can be in us, the hope of glory that he has redeemed us as believers. And this is what we share as partners and friends in the gospel, the supremacy of the Son. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, Your word is truth. Uh, May your Holy Spirit lead me, lead us, uh, to continually understand and apply it rightly. And Lord, we praise you this morning. Jesus, you are supreme, and you all things hold together. In you we have redemption, we have forgiveness. And as we remember that, as we prepare, prepare now for communion, I ask that you be the center be supreme in our lives. And may any who, who aren't there, who have not trusted in you or have wandered away from you as Lord, would they seek you today? Put faith in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.